Welcome back, dear listeners, to this new episode of the Sparker Podcast. Today, I have the privilege to talk to the one and only Urs Hölzle. Urs is a Swiss computer scientist who, back in the late 1990s, became the eighth employee of Google. For the past two decades, he was responsible for building what might be the most impressive infrastructure ever created. You all know the services that run on the infrastructure Urs developed. Google Search, Gmail, YouTube, Google Drive, Google Maps, Google Cloud, and many others. What makes Google's infrastructure so impressive is its scale, the complexity, and efficiency with which it operates. Google's data centers span multiple continents and are largely powered by renewable energy sources. Also, the company uses advanced techniques such as machine learning and AI to optimize its data centers, reduce the energy consumption and improve reliability. In this conversation, I talked to Urs about the early days of Google, when it was not much more than just a few people and computers in a garage in Silicon Valley. Also, we discussed the hiring strategy, as well as the learning and innovation culture that were crucial for Google's success. We also touched on cloud computing, the reason why Europe is behind the US regarding digital innovation, and what drives him as a human being. So with all that out of the way, please enjoy this special episode of the Sparker podcast with none other than Urs Hölzle from Google. I would like to take a trip back down memory lane and do some time traveling because it's very easy, of course, to think of Google as this tech titan with thousands of employees and just this massive company. But I think we should go back in time and remind ourselves how it all began. So Google started in, let's say, 1997, 98. That's when you were joining the company. And at that time, Sergey and Larry were in a garage. Let's start at this garage. What convinced you or attracted you to work for these two guys in the garage? Because you were assistant professor, you had your startup experience, you were at Sun Microsystems. What convinced you and attracted you to work with these two guys in the garage? Great question. So, you know, it was a younger version of myself, the last millennium. And I was actually sort of looking for a personal reason. So my wife was at Stanford at the time. I was in Santa Barbara. I had been commuting back and forth. And after five years, it kind of gets old. And I was looking, you know, I was coming up for my sabbatical, like my, my tenure case at, at UC Santa Barbara. My first wave of students was about to graduate. So I was looking to take one year sabbatical and sort of learn something interesting. But this was the middle of the internet bubble. So you get, you know, 10 calls every day from someone wants to hire you and none of them make any sense. And also not only do they not make sense necessarily as like, why are you doing this? Other than I want to go public with some company, but also because it wasn't technically interesting, right? It was really, I build a website and I do something with it. And so if you come from academia, this is not how you spend a year because you don't learn that much. Right? And so it was really different. 
And actually, I took two people to tell me, you should really talk to these people. Because the first time a colleague at Stanford, it was a professor, told me. And I'm like, well, I don't really know anything about search. So, <laughs> like, what they, they can't really need, use someone like me. And then the second time, I, I, I kind of sent them an email and an interviewed actually in the garage. They actually tricked me to think, to think that it was a, a company of six people and uh, three engineers other than uh, Larry and Sergey. And, and they didn't tell me that two of those three engineers had started that morning. I interviewed in the afternoon. And, but it was sort of clear that I think two things were different. One is they really, actually three things were different. One is they actually had a product that even back then, like it was slow and not super reliable, but it was really the only search engine that actually could find things, right? So the product clearly had, you know, had some value. I had no idea how this would be a business, but at the, at certainly you're doing something that is useful, right? Second, the founders didn't at all talk about going public and, you know, billions and whatever. They really talked about the mission. And then the people were very good. I mean, both Larry and Sergey, and, and actually the three people later already hired. And also it was clear that the technical problems were, you know, huge and actually kind of in an area that I sort of understood a little bit, you know, there was clearly an infrastructure problem, for example, et cetera. And so I'm like, well, you know, I can bike there. They don't have funding, but, you know, I, I'm fine, right? I, I have a job to go back to. Why not spend a year there? And, and I'm sure I will learn something, right? And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I go back to university. And so I asked my wife, you know, what do you think? I'm like, yeah, sure. Because clearly this thing works and looks interesting. All right. And from what you've been answering now, I already hear some elements that I think are in general a good way to attract talent. So that's something that I would also learn from you mm -hmm. now with all the history that you have and experience that you have. What does attract talent because everybody in this room needs talent and talent is short. So how do you get people to work for you? It's super hard, especially, you know, if it's a competitive environment and, and I think it needs a lot of focus. And I think many people, you know, don't act rationally given the ROI, right? And, and so I think the way I want is just there's two anecdotes. So, so one, the one way I motivated people, I said, look, if you spend a day a week interviewing and you find only one person at the end of the year, you doubled, but that person is as good as you are, right? You doubled your productivity, right? There's nothing else you can do that doubles your productivity, right? That is as important for your company, right? There's really nothing else, right? So if that's one day a week, it's actually the best day of the week. Like the rest of the day where you did brilliant algorithms, actually, you can't do twice as much, right? Like nobody, nobody can do that. So that's number one. And then number two, I think you have to sort of realize that in some places, it's okay to have a good person. In other places, you need a great person, right? And if you see 10 good people, you have to say no to all of them. And it's hard. And we were actually pretty close to that being very hard because in, I believe it was in May 99, was still, the bubble was still going on. We did not make a single offer, right? And so like at the end of the month, you're of course like, hey, maybe our standards are wrong. Like, are we making a mistake? Like we can't really succeed if we can't hire anyone. But, you know, we looked at the top resumes, et cetera, like the top interviews, and we're like, no, actually, we, we think that was the right choice. And fortunately, 
literally like on June 8th, you know, the world collapsed, right? And, and you know, the, the bubble burst. And suddenly you had resumes, you know, coming out of your ears, right? And so in June, we found, you know, five people and we were like, okay, this, this works, right? But what if that hadn't happened? What if for six months, you know, what we have made a different decision? I don't know, right? So there's a good element of luck as well. But last but not least, it's, it's like your proverbial network effect. You know, good people want to work with good people and people know they interview you too right? In, in an interview. So they can tell who's there and am I going to be, the really good people aren't afraid to work with someone who is better than them because they know that's actually the best way to advance yourself, right? right? To learn from others. So, so somehow you have to create that dynamic. Again, like at, I, I do remember that time, like we were doubting ourselves too, right? So it's easier said than done, especially if it's a hot market and, and, you know, like everyone can, you know, fog a mirror and get a job. You, you know, it's hard, right? Uh, how have you learned to distinguish between a good person and an excellent, great person? You don't. I think, I think there's no science, right? I think interviewing is hard. If anyone of you wants to be discouraged about that, uh, read Daniel Kahneman's book, Noise, a relatively new book, super easy read, actually. But it will depress you because it's sort of about how good is the judgment of experts, Right? And the answer is not good at all and much worse than you think. And part of it is actually about how hard it is to do interviews. And they actually do give Google some credit in one of the chapters because one of the things we try to do is to do two things. One is make the interview somewhat of a skills test. Like instead of asking you, you know, what have you done and how good is your programming? It's like, well, here's a problem. How would you approach it? Right. And you sort of solve it together and you actually learn a lot, not about just your technical skills, but also how you deal with, with the interaction, right? What if I contradict you? How do you deal with that? Right. How, how can you handle conflict? Sort of all, all these things. And then the second one is don't make it a single person job, like have multiple people and actually have the, those people debate. The outcome, like that, that you you get less blindness, less bias, if you have multiple angles and you don't prefer the hiring manager or someone else, right? The biggest voice in the room, so to speak. So that, th those are, but it's super hard. And I I think we made lots of mistakes in the sense of we said no to people we should have said yes to, and obviously we said yes to a few people that we should have said no to. But the first problem is actually a bigger one if you want to grow, and I don't have a good answer. Right? Yeah. And you already mentioned the, the bubble that was going on at that time, the dot-com bubble, who then also crashed. Was it, I think, 1999, 2000? Yeah, 2001? it was in, in 2000. Well, I mean, by 2000, it was over. Yeah. 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 What I would like to learn from you is during that very hard situation, this very tough macro environment with the dot-com bubble and crash, what was the, let's say, component of Google's DNA or what was the remarkable part of Google that made it survive the crash and also thrive mm -hmm. in or after the crash? I mean, I think there was a good deal of luck because, um, you know, half a year, a year more, and it wouldn't have worked. I mean, for, for, for background, so Google raised $25 million in June 99 and did not raise any money afterwards, but was not profitable until I think 2003, maybe late 2002. So there was really basically almost four years with 
25 million dollars right and so i think from the beginning the line circuit didn't want to raise too much money and give up you know too much of the company so it was like how do you make more with less how do you save money and then eric you know his favorite like his first word or his first sentence always was cash is king like if you run out of cash it doesn't matter what else you have <laughs> it's over right so like we you know what's our cash flow and you know what's our burn rate you know how do we get to positive and we you know we you may have all seen our corkboard servers like a terrible looking early rack like it's really a terrible mess we've managed to finance this capex with a lender who believed that there were standard PCs, yeah, <laughs> uh, which was true to some extent as collateral, right? Mm-hmm. And therefore was able, you know, we we're willing to finance. And they sent us asset stickers to put on, but fortunately they didn't visit to put on the stickers themselves. <laughs> so, cause we couldn't afford to buy them, right? Like $25 million was not enough to pay yeah. employees and, and have infrastructure. And, and being very efficient with your resources is also obviously where you come in. The, the infrastructure you built, I think one could say, is one of the most impressive infrastructures mm-hmm. that has ever been built. Mm-hmm. And I built it myself, by the way, with my bare hands. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. You, the, the job title you gave yourself is, I believe, search engine mechanic or something like that. That was my first, yes. So yeah. you were the mechanic and you started out yeah. with a rack of, I think, 30 machines. It was, and yeah, it turned out quite bigger. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. How 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 did you go about scaling such an impressive infrastructure so efficiently? It was actually it was really to go back to the previous topic. It was about hiring. Like, there's no way you can do that yourself. By the way, search engine mechanic. I I kind of picked that title because really everything was broken. Right, like <laughs> you know, there's the Stanford roots, right, and that's great. But the downside is this was student code, and you tried to serve you know a million users. And then 10 million users with student code. And let me tell you, students don't know how to write code that is, in, you know, production grade code. And so really everything was broken. And that's why it wasn't more than just a joke. It was actually like very much, very practical, fixed basic problems kind of things. Right. But that, again, that leads me back to hiring without, you know, the first 50 people being really, really good systems people, flexible infrastructure people, et cetera, this would not have worked, right? So it actually is really that versus a technical breakthrough kind of thing. You can't solve the world with a technical breakthrough. You actually have to do it. And for that, you need the right people working as a team. And here again, with scaling such a machine in such short time is an impressive feat in itself, but then also in this very dynamic environment as a whole. And I believe you once said something like, even though you worked in infrastructure for, let's say, 20 years, you never had the same job for one or two years. Mm -hmm. So here I hear a lot of lifelong learning mentality going on. What has helped you to stay on top of the game, to to develop every year and just always meet new standards? You know, in a way, it's easier i think in in a field like mine because the world forces you to do it like you will fail fairly quickly if you don't do it and so in that sense there's a little bit of survivorship bias like it worked because it worked right because <laughs> if it didn't work yeah i wouldn't be here right and so in that sense you know that, that's a given but actually really there is a lot of pressure because technology around you is changing the applications are changing the scale is changing and basically the recipe that you were proud of you know three years ago is really failing today. 
And so you have to, and people understand that after, you know, a not too long time. And that really puts you in a different mode. And one of the different modes is that, you know, Switzerland has that problem sometimes, like, you know, to take a risk, to do something that might fail is considered risky, right? But if you sort of know that the alternative of continuing to do what you do is guaranteed failure, it's actually not that risky to try something else, right? Because it's all relative. And so if you can see that this is going to blow up, of course, you're going to try something new, right? And maybe more than one thing. And if that fails, actually, again, the baseline was, of course, you fail. So let's try something else and try to get out of it. And so in a, in a way that actually is, is you, know, a, you know, really a simplifying or clarifying, if you want, situation, you are forced to innovate because the alternative is to basically blow up. And it's really obvious in infrastructure when, when and that this is happening, where in other places you might actually confuse yourself about being okay continuing what you're doing until it's too late. Uh, you know, infrastructure kind of, it's physics and physics doesn't lie to you <laughs> and it wins, right? I always say reality wins right? in the end. Well, sometimes I doubt that, but you know, in, in infrastructure, <laughs> reality wins. And so you really have to address the problem. And you now mentioned the kind of this struggle and urgency to survive because it will break. But what are also other elements of creating this environment where you encourage people or enable people and organizations to take risks, to have fun with experimenting? Because you know, some industries like finance is not known for having fun with experiments. So what can you tell us about that? Um, you know, I would actually answer it. Slightly different. So in a way, it's not all fun and games and experimentation and innovation, et cetera, right? Because actually you also need, you know, discipline, like especially in, op in operational kind of things. And so the key really is how do you marry, you know, like early on we said, hey, actually we want, you know, 100% uptime if we can get it, right? And you don't get there by experimenting and by innovating. You have to actually pay attention and you have to have rules and you have to you know, have discipline about how things or security or, you know, something like that. And so the key really is how can you do that, but at the same time have innovation and how do you have, you know, the sandbox? What does that mean? Right. The concept is actually kind of similar. Like where is it okay to innovate and, and, and take risk and where is it not okay? And are you good in communicating that? And, and so in some places, for example, we have like in our hardware development, we have, colors for different projects and the colors are there so that people aren't confused right about what the rules are that apply because there are some things where like time is everything right like you should take a lot of risk and and because having the product out might be worth let's say a million dollars a day and so if you can cut 60 days of schedule you can take a lot of risk right because it's 60 million dollars of savings so if you spend five million dollars more good for you right another thing is, well, here's a new power supply. It's an incremental improvement. The most important thing is for this thing to work and not break in production. So very different things. And so we actually give projects color. So, you know, if you work on a pink project, you know, versus a yellow project, different rules apply. And you're not confused seeing the other person doing something else and then thinking you should do the same, right? Because like, no, this is a pink project, these rules, you know, et cetera. So those are kind of important things because in, in innovation, actually, if you don't have a certain amount of discipline, you will fail in a different way. Right? Maybe more spectacular, but you know, you, you, you still will fail. That was already a very good trick, I would say, with working with these very clear communication tricks of colors. What else is there that makes a, a good manager or a good leader in 
such dynamic environments? I mean, the other thing that actually makes a really big difference is, you know, what we call blameless postmortems. So when something goes wrong, and that could be technical or it could be an outage, you know, an operational outage, it's really expected of you to write a postmortem and it has a certain structure. But basically, it's really a timeline of sort of the events that led to the problem and including names like, you know, here I, Johnny, pressed the wrong key and then search went down. Right. And then an analysis of really what happened and what would have prevented this from happening other than you being perfect. Right. And so you have to kind of accept that people are not perfect. Occasionally mistakes happen. And can you create a situation in the future where this mistake wouldn't have cost us as much? Right. Because there's some other you know, for example, an automated system that, that would have said, hey, wait, 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 do you really want to shoot yourself in the foot? You know, click yes, right? Or actually probably click, you know, control, alt, you know, <laughs> yes, whatever, right? Or actually even more, like ask another person to agree with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so we have a lot of two-factor or two-person authentication for tricky things because we say, hey, this is a place where you want to review with someone else. But anyway, blameless postmortem. Postmortem is important because that's how you learn, but actually blameless is really important because if you don't have blameless, then the postmortem will be a lie, right? It will be a prettification of what really happened because nobody really wants to be the person who brought down search and it will be, you know, a little bit too fluffy and the follow-up items aren't actually going to address the full problem, right? Because you didn't really want to talk about the full problem. And so the blameless part is really, really important to have sort of a, a learning culture. And it's really hard to establish that especially when people come from different backgrounds. So maybe as one anecdote, so for those of you familiar with the data center sort of operations community, very different than software, right? People, like say in the US, a lot of them come from what we call the Navy nukes, so the people who run nuclear submarine mechanical systems and, and, and the power system because they understand, you know, discipline and large power and, you know, critical systems. They're not used to, like they come from a very different culture, right? And so... I remember one particular outage in Belgium, first postmortem was sort of like things happened, right? And then, you know, system went down and the learning is next time we should pay more attention, right? But like no names, no details, no nothing, right? And you had to go like multiple times back and rewrite this thing and then actually celebrate the person who made the mistake, right? And the message was, you know, Johnny or Jane, whoever it was, helped us make sure that in the entire world, this will not happen again, right? Because we have such a clear understanding of that mistake and we updated our procedures or, you know, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. And it was really hard. But the next time something happened, the first draft was much better, right? Because people really learned that you didn't just say post-mortem, blameless postmortem, you actually meant it, right? So you have to continuously demonstrate and celebrate failure to some extent to really show people that, you actually mean it, right? It is safe to say I made a mistake and here's what everyone should learn from it. And that's a big precondition for innovation or or risk-taking of any kind of form. Mm -hmm. And how has this changed from being an organization with 15 people, for example, to now being an organization with 150,000 people? So what of the tricks or hacks still work also at that size and what has had to change. You know, we're still figuring that out. I think, <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things you realize is that you have to make things much more formal as you get bigger. Like when you're small, every, let's say, blameless postmortem, like everyone sees it, everyone knows it. You don't actually have to even write it down, right? It's clear that that's what's expected of you. 
But once you're multiple buildings, multiple campuses, multiple countries, actually, people don't know it, right? Because they didn't have to, they didn't observe it themselves because it was too far away from them. And so that I think is sort of the key. How do you become, like you have to become more formal, but how do you actually not make this a formal company? That's actually what you sort of struggle with every day. And, and that's, I don't have a silver bullet. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the question of making mistakes, celebrating mistakes is obviously one of the all-time classics when you say, why is Silicon Valley different than Switzerland or why is the US different than Europe and so forth? So maybe let's go down that route and look at Switzerland and Europe. Why do you believe has Europe or Switzerland not really produced that many titans of the new economy? Is it solely that or are there other factors at play as well? I mean, I think there's, you know, has produced some, but there's just very few relative to the talent pool and the size of Europe. I mean, I think my, you know, the easiest answer, and I think it's actually a true answer, is that Europe isn't one market. I think Europe actually has done a fairly good job making one market for, you know, bolts and nuts and, and you know, for all I care, machines. But the software like everything is software today. And for software, the rules actually aren't really very uniform. And there may be an EU guideline, but then every country interprets it differently. And you plus the language problem, et cetera. So it's actually hard for you to get traction in a market of, let's say, 500 million people, which Europe theoretically is. And uh, whereas in the US, there isn't, you know, there's actually less regulation per se, but also it's it's more uniform, right? Federal law trumps state law. And, and, and so, you know, you actually have a single market plus you have associated markets that are pretty similar, like Canada, UK, Australia, and actually, you know, people speak English. So you can probably get part of Europe without localizing. Right. So I think that is something that is a real break, especially on a startup, because, you know, doing something illegal is not a good thing for a startup. And, and, but following 27 different rules to be, be legal is taking a lot of time away from what you actually want to do, right? So I would say actually regulation is a good thing, right? You create certainty, it creates rules, but it really needs to be rules that are predictable and uniform for as large a market as possible. And it's not always possible to make that all of Europe, but I think it's possible a lot more than what the situation is today. Plus there are then other regulations, like I think GDPR has a lot of excellent ideas in it, but the truth is nobody knows what it means. <laughs> Right? And it's still being interpreted. right? And so it's very hard to have certainty that you're doing the right thing because it's actually not really fully agreed what the words mean. And the first lawsuit is going to define it. right? And it might be against you. So not a great strategy or not a great experience to sort of go through. So that I think is number one. I think number two is that a lot of people have gone to the US. Right? This is a talent market. So, so you have a little bit less talent. I think that's fixable. I think you know if there were you know, 50 Spotify's, you know, people would say, hey, I don't need to go to the US to have an impact and to have a worldwide product, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But that, you know, I think that's my best. I'm not an expert. I haven't lived in Europe for 30 years. So take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> We've been talking about innovation now for quite some time in this conversation. Have you, what have you learned how real innovation happens when Google was a startup compared to where it is today as a corporate One of those factors might be universal. Can you tell us something about that? You know, I think 
And again, innovation can mean anything, right? So, so, so I, I actually look at it more as sort of, you know, progress, impact, you know, something that causes, you know, progress or impact. And it's actually always both in a small and in, and today it's sort of a mix of things. Some of it is really planned progress. Like, you know, go back to infrastructure, you know, you have to fix this thing and you cannot do it the same way you did it. So you, you know, that's what I call planned progress. And usually if the problem's clear enough and you have a good set of people, you will find a way to, to move forward. Right? The other one is really the unexpected one. Like you were not actually, you know, thinking there's a big opportunity. You weren't necessarily focused on it, but then you see something that is clearly working and you, you emphasize that, right? You grab onto it and, and, and you, you know, you turn it into something bigger. And often I, I, you know, I encourage people to be very deliberate about which bin different things belong to, because again, you have to treat them differently, right? If it's sort of planned innovation or even forced innovation, if you want, like you have to solve this, you have to run it differently than, well, okay, you know, it's okay for you to, to try this thing out because actually if it doesn't work, that's okay. It's not, I don't depend on it, right? Like it's only upside, but not really downside other than wasted time. It's a very different situation. You have to actually approach that very differently. Last but not least, you have to actually be really clear that there isn't the department of innovation and the department of execution. I mean, to some extent, there is always some of that, but if you try to segregate it out, you really get too big of a gap. And so our research teams are actually quite integrated with production teams so that Technology transfer isn't really something that happens because it sort of happens all the time. You're talking all the time. You're not a separate, I mean, formally you're a separate department, but you measure your research worth by what your product people think of you and actually how many users your innovation reaches or what the customer satisfaction is that your feature gets, right? And then again, the innovation is something that kind of is more likely, even if you don't do a good job managing it, it's more likely to actually end up in, in a good place. Well, now we're talking about innovation, let's go a bit concrete and let's start the conversation about the cloud. I mean, cloud is one huge innovation with a lot of potential. And I was wondering while preparing this conversation, if it's fair to make the comparison between cloud computing and the industrial revolution, because in both cases, you have a centralization of power or centralization of production. Mm -hmm. In the first, before that, you had servers everywhere or computers everywhere, just like you had small manufacturers yeah. at yeah. the water, using water power mm -hmm. and so forth. How do you think about that comparison? I wouldn't quite do it that way because manufacturing really sort of transformed how things were done. And the concentration was actually different for every industry, right? So manufacturing was actually something vertical, if you want. Not necessarily some, I mean, parts of it were horizontal. And I, so I would actually look more at the horizontal parts, electricity, steam power, sort of things like that, because they were technologies, but they were really enablers and they had very, very different use cases. And actually most of the value wasn't in the electricity, but what you did with it. And actually I think cloud is kind of similar in the sense that it's really a layer that helps both other software companies, but also end user companies to do things in a better way, you know, faster, more secure, you know, whatever you care about, but it's an enabler. And, and for cloud, you know, Bill Gates once said the pl a platform is a platform. If people on top of the platform are making more money than the platform does, it's absolutely true for cloud. 
right? Like, you, you know, the success for cloud is that actually the value both end users create and intermediaries pass, pass SaaS, et cetera, is bigger than the platform itself, right? So I would say, I, I would compare it more to electricity, where everyone used to have their own power station. I grew up in Liestal there as the Handro factory. As a boy, I did, actually was still a factory there. I didn't know what they were doing. I mean, I kind of knew they were doing some, you know, underwear or whatever boring. So I, you know, didn't care. But they had their own, you could see the remnants of their own little power plant, right? They had like a little river power plant was long dormant then. But still, that's how factories work, right? You made your power and then you made your factory. So that's the equivalent to the IT, right? You made your own data center and then you ran your company. And that's really what's going away. And it's really the same advantage. The grid is way more efficient. It's way more scalable. It's cheaper, right? And uh, But it enables you to not think about the infrastructure and instead think about making underwear, right? Or, you know, whatever it is. And, and that's, I, I think, what I, what I see in cloud. And it's really a software thing, not a hosting thing, right? The platform is all about software not about the fact that it's on our data center versus your data center. Though that has benefits too, but that's not really the, the, the essence. To me, it sounds like when talking about cloud, the right way to think about is it's not really it's a technological shift, but more of a, a cultural shift or a business mindset shift. How, how do you respond to that? It's actually like if you ask you know, me to put it in order, I would say cloud is culture first, both on the business side you know, like if if you see what, let's say, analytics teams can do with cloud tools, they really change their culture. Or if you see how people collaborate with workspace versus office, it is it changes how you work, right? It, it changes the culture. Software engineering, if you do CI, CD, you know, it, it's, it's a different, you know, agile. It's like it's a different way of thinking. If you have no provisioning, and DevOps instead of operations, it really changes the culture of how you think about you know, product development and things like that. So I would say culture first, software second. It's a software platform. It has nothing to do, well, not nothing to do, but it actually has nothing to do with data centers really in, in terms of durable value, right? And then last but not least, I would say that elasticity and cost, even though they are big things, are not what you get from cloud. If that's all you get from cloud, great, but not transformative. Right. So it really is actually about can you use it as a way to reform your IT to boost the speed or the quality at which you can do things and really actually say, you know, this IT thing actually wasn't a cost item, but actually provided value to me. That I think is, is the goal of cloud. Big words, but actually that's what we see with many customers. Right. But only after they go through a culture change as well. And so more and more of our customers actually are coming with that and saying, help us change our culture because we realize that technology itself isn't going to get us there. It might be awesome. It doesn't really get you there. I would imagine that US or Salesforce are living in the future. So <laughs> I would uh, be into, you want to respond already? Yes, that's actually true now because I live in New Zealand, which is ahead in time zone of everything else. So I'm actually 10 years, 10, 10 hours ahead of you and and 23 hours ahead of someone else, Hawaii, yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. But also in a more broader sense, I mean, I would imagine that you are already thinking about far more into the future than 
cloud, which is already firmly in the present. It has arrived here. So what are the things that excite you that is on the horizon? Maybe new paradigm shifts or just something that excites you, that keeps you going? Actually, I'm pretty excited about the, the opportunities because, again, a cloud is actually, I think, the first time in 25 years to kind of redo the software stack that everyone uses and actually make it more open You know, because I say 25 years because it was sort of Windows, Mac around that time, maybe Linux. And before that, it was another 25 years, you know, IBM 360, uh, MVS. So these opportunities are really, really rare and we're not at all done, right? So cloud is the Nokia of phones, not the, the smartphone of phones today, right? And so I think what I'm excited about is that I think if we look back five years from now, if you remember this conversation, I think five years from now, You will say, if you already are dealing with cloud today, you will say, I can't believe I thought this was good, right? Because it was so incredibly primitive. I don't, I, like, I don't know why anyone bought it right? in 2022 because cloud 2027 is just way better, right? In a way where you really don't accept anymore that 2022 was even viable, right? That's the opportunity that I'm excited about. We're really pretty early stage still. Things are too primitive everywhere. And, and, but we, we kind of know how to solve many of these things, right? So if we could, that would be, that would last for a while, right? All right. And now taking it away from cloud specifically or technology, mm -hmm. just you as a person in general, what, what drives you after being decades in the business? I mean, you keep going, you keep learning. What is it? I mean, it, it, you know, you know, I'm in a privileged position of both being in a field, but also in an environment that actually changes all the time and so in a way it doesn't really feel that much different from being in academia and doing research right where, where, where things you know you have a choice of what to focus on like in a way we don't have that much of a choice because you know again the you know reality forces you to do, to do certain things but everything ages out fairly quickly and you have to reinvent sort of what you did and so That's both a danger, but also an opportunity. And, and that is very easy to keep, you know, being excited about, right? So I don't feel really I'm, I'm, I'm doing the same job. And I don't feel that it's hard to, you know, be excited or to learn new things because you sort of, well, they're, they're right in front of you and, and they're interesting, right? And they're different. And so, so, so to give you just an example, you know, machine learning, It's huge today, right? And the amount of time we spent on creating hardware that's really optimized for machine learning is pretty significant. Five years ago, even five years ago, this was, yeah, we kind of were doing it, but it was like a 5% thing, right? It wasn't really the center of, or, or, you know, a lot of what we do today. If you look at the total compute capacity of our data centers, actually the machine learning is by far, like probably an order of magnitude bigger, right? As energy, for example, as footprint, it's actually pretty small, 10%. But as compute power, because it's so specialized for just this job, it, it's, it's probably 10x the rest, right? And the fact that you go from something where five years ago it was epsilon, like 5%, and now it's 10x, keeps, keeps, things, keeps, things, keeps things interesting, right? It's, not, it's, it's hard to be bored right? in, yeah. in, in such a situation. Uh, absolutely, I can understand that perfectly. I mean, we could go on forever, but I think in respect of time, it's... Uh, also time to come to a close. What I also find very fascinating about you when doing my research a little bit, I mean, obviously, as a very early employee of Google, you are a very, very wealthy person. 
But in no shape or form would I have ever had the impression that you care about the, the wealth or the so-called net worth, or you do not define yourself at all through that. What is it that does define you? I mean, I think maybe that's an engineering trait. I, I know a lot of other people and, and also, but it's actually a luxury, right? To some extent, I mean, the way I look at it is to say that, uh, you know, the luxury of not having to work actually, if it leads to you worrying about how you have even more money, then in a way, money imprisoned you rather than freed you, right? And so if I'm in a position to not have to work, then actually I have really the choice. And fortunately, I, you know, I, I think I'm still making good choice. And, and so that's, that's very free, right? And so in a way that's, that's uh, like, I don't do investing myself. I basically have almost zero direct investment because I don't have the time, right? I think it's interesting, but you know, what I'm doing is actually interesting too. And actually I'm better at that than I'm at, I'm at investing. So uh, like, why would I, you know, spend time on that? Right. So in a way that these things, you know, are, you know, money is, is, is in a way an enabler. And, and so I, I think, uh, you know, counting it doesn't make you more happy. Right? I, I, I think doing something that is, is, is fun and, and, and hopefully has an impact, you know, I, I think it's much easier for me to be happy with. I hope you keep making that choice to keep continue innovating and enabling the future. So Urs Hölzle, thank you very much for this opportunity to have this conversation. Big round of applause. Thanks again to Urs Hölzle for sharing his insights from over two decades of building Google. This conversation was recorded live during the Swiss Fintech Awards Night in Zurich in 2022. For more exciting conversations with leading minds in technology, innovation and leadership, please consider subscribing to the Sparker podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your favorite shows. And if you liked this episode, please leave a good rating for the show. It would be much appreciated. I'm looking forward to welcoming you back to another episode soon, where I'll uncover the mindsets, tactics and insights of exceptional people and organizations to enable you, the changemakers. It was a great pleasure having you with me this episode. I wish you a great day and talk to you soon.